Welcome to the eGovernance Academy podcast to discover the future of governance. eGovernance Academy has assisted digital transformation globally in more than 130 countries. Our experts will share their insights and worldwide examples on how digital technology could benefit every society. Tune in for the Digital Government Podcast every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to Digital Governance podcast of Estonian e-governance academy. My name is Linnar Viikka. I'm a program director at e-governance academy and I'm very happy and pleased to have with me today in the studio Katrin Neumann-Metkalf, our program expert at e-governance academy. And our topic today is freedom on the net. Hello, Katrin. Hello, nice to be here. And uh, let me be clear. The Freedom House, which publishes on an annual basis a Freedom on the Net report, analyzing the different aspects on freedom on the internet, you have been also a contributor to that report earlier. That's right. I was uh, the key uh, contributor for Estonia for um, a couple of years, maybe even three years, so until last year. So, so this year I was not involved, but uh, but yes, I've been involved, as have you, I believe. Well, in fact, yes, uh, very early, starting from the, um, 2009, I was involved, and I think I was involved in first uh, five years. Uh, so it's uh, really good to see how that report has progressed and once again uh, to uh, give a view, of course, we will add to our podcast also the links to the report and why we consider that important. It is important to understand that uh, now when 5 billion people are online virtually every day on planet Earth, we need to make sure and understand also whether the rights they enjoy offline are protected online as well. And um, they are freedom of expression, access to information, the privacy, etc. Katrin, did you think that um, starting from 2009, that report was timely and is it addressing uh, real issues? Definitely, yes. No, it, it's definitely needed. Like um, you say, then rights, um, I'm, I'm one of those people that's a little bit maybe a matter of, of taste or so, but I don't really like to talk of digital rights as if it was something completely different. But exactly like what you said, they are human rights that people have online and offline. And the more we move online, the more important it is to protect these rights also online. And what I like about this report is that it's understanding that there are different things involved in having rights online. Also, what may seem as a fairly technical or practical matter, but the actual access to internet, how do you get the physical access to it? That is considered in this report, and that is indeed a, an issue for freedom of expression as well, because if there is this now wonderful tool to use for all sorts of things, for communication, for research, for work, whatever, but if you cannot use it for some reason, then obviously the, the benefits aren't there, aren't equal. Um, so, so that is one side of it. And then the other side is the perhaps more easily understandable freedom of expression issue of are you allowed to to post certain content are you allowed to access certain content um, so 
both those things are very important and the more important, and I guess now with the um, corona crisis, we see even more than before how much of our lives are and can be online. So then, of course, the protection of rights online gets more and more important. The report covers really, as you started to uh, to analyze it, uh, three big areas. One is related to obstacles to the access, access to the technology, access to the infrastructure, uh, other economic or social or political barriers to the um, uh, to the access. Second part is not just access to the technology and internet services, but uh, certain limits on the content. Is a limit uh, filtered to you? And um, are there regulatory, technical blocking or filtering? Uh, or is there a censorship in the deep sense existing? And third part is related to violation of user rights the other in certain legal protections and rest restrictions made on free expression. Do you think that this kind of triangle or triad, the access uh, limits on content and user rights, is reflecting well the most important topics of the user rights online issues now in 21st century? Broadly, yes. I like the, the fact of these different categories. I like the fact that they're all taken into consideration. I may have issue with exactly what is in these different categories, um, but I have issue with it in the sense that you have when you're looking at some competent person's research, so to speak. It's not as if there's anything really wrong with it, um, but maybe how the different things within these categories are evaluated, I find... Maybe it's a little bit of an American view rather than a European view, um, where the difference is uh, one of degree in what is regarded as being a limitation and what is regarded as being, yes, a certain restriction, but for, for good purposes and so um, but uh, as for these three categories, I think indeed they are well chosen and they are very useful because um, all of them show what for for people, for actual individuals, what chances are there to use internet freely? Because if you have um, physical access, but there are lots of restrictions, then obviously you have nothing. But also, even if the rights are given to you, but then they are violated, then again, you lose the benefit. So you really need to look at all of these three things to be able to, to create a picture of what is it really like. Can you elaborate a little bit the kind of difference between so-called American and European uh, approach to, is it ge something general in terms of the general approach to human rights, or is it just as a part of methodology of this particular report, which is different between Europe and America? It's a difference uh, in the way freedom of expression is seen. Uh, very simply put, the American uh, view is that um, you make no restrictions. So basically any limitation of freedom of expression is seen as a sort of as a restriction, which is bad. So it's very difficult in the US to limit any form of expression. Then, of course, there are various uh, ways around this as well. And so, but basically that's the kind of very fundamental view. Um, this may sound like that is great. And how come Europeans aren't following such a wonderful idea? Uh, but actually... 
being European, I prefer maybe the European way of looking upon things where it is um, seen very clearly that sometimes there are good reasons for limiting not just freedom of expression, but also other human rights and freedoms. Um, and that is to protect some other right. Um, one um, example of this is data protection. I think everybody in digital issues is very aware of it. That is pr to protect people's privacy and their private lives. This is a good thing to protect. So that means that you put these two rights in, like, uh, on a scale. You weigh them against one another, and then you see which one weighs the heaviest in a certain circumstance. And that means that sometimes then freedom of expression can be limited because another right sort of takes over. Uh, and that is true also for, for digital rights, obviously, that uh, sometimes there should be certain limits on freedom of expression because of um, dangers. For instance, to incitement to hatred and violence. That's, that's something which it's easier to limit freedom of expression in, in the European way of looking upon things when there is a real danger of incitement to hatred against a certain group than it is in the US where there are certain limitations but they are much more difficult and we've seen perhaps some effects of that this summer. With all this. That particular report, Freedom on the Net, has been published uh, since 2009 already and... Uh, it has expanded from 15 countries coverage now to uh, 65 countries and it's covering around 85, 85 plus per percent of the population on the planet Earth and, uh, and global internet population especially. So it's giving a rather good view on the trends which are happening. And what we can say is we are living in the times when governments are becoming more and more creative and also in the same time uh, feeling their powers to set up different restrictions and limits on uh, free use of internet. Starting from 2009, we enjoyed a couple of years of... Kind of uh, uh, increase of the freedom in a number of categories, but after that, the topics like privatization of censorship, meaning that it goes out to the media houses and uh, it is self-censorship, uh, 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 different ways of eroding privacy, uh, privacy. then um, different communication apps which became under pressure, uh, government or government agencies uh, uh, attempts to manipulate social media, uh, then the rise of digital uh, authorities or authoritarianism. Those are all signals and signs that governments are not enjoying the free internet around the world. Katrin, what do you think is a cause? Why governments don't like internet to be free? A number of things. Um, first of all, I think in the beginning when internet was, not when it was brand new, then it was still not so much used, but when it started to be used a lot, I think some governments may still have thought that it's a little bit... Um, 
not marginal, but not of that great an importance. So some uh, authoritarian governments may have felt that, okay, let's give people a bit more freedom on the internet because the kind of people who use it are anyway the kind of people who will search for different information and and it doesn't matter so much because the broad masses will still believe what we tell them in our well-controlled broadcasting and newspapers and so so you kind of thought let's let's leave this this new technology to be something a bit more free because it can't really harm us and that of course um, that attitude changed when internet became so prevalent and I think the use of mobile phones has meant a lot in many parts of the world because a lot more people have access to mobile phones and smartphones than have access to computers so that meant that suddenly broad sectors of the population could access this, this different information that wasn't controlled so then governments that that uh, have authoritarian tendencies got worried because suddenly all sorts of, say, ordinary people could could get access to this freer information. Um, then, unfortunately, we have a trend with um, governments um, eroding many human rights. So then, of course, it spills over. Like we said in the beginning, digital rights is nothing else than human rights in a digital environment. So when human rights are being eroded, that will reflect also in the digital environment. Um, so, so those two tendencies, and then the third one, which you alluded to a bit as well, is it's a new thing for everybody that private companies have such huge powers. We've had powerful private companies before, but never anything like now with with uh, platforms online. So we are essentially delegating to private companies to decide what's ethical and what's reasonable. And so nobody knows what to do with this. This is discussed by lawyers, by by people deal with ethics, by business people, by IT people. It's a new thing. We we are sort of finding out what this means for society, um, and this also leads to a certain nervousness then among decision makers. This year's report is highlighting the so-called digital shadow of uh, COVID or the post-pandemic process, which we, of course, we don't know whether it's over or not, but we have witnessed already certain trends and three big trends have been highlighted in this year's report. One, which is related really to the politicians around the world and governments using the pandemic as a pretext to limit the access to information, to create an, an controlled and uh, blocked information space for societies. Second was something which we uh, recognized very quickly, using digital technologies for the surveillance purposes, moving beyond the the regulations and beyond the the good practices we have had so far on on uh, on positioning individuals and uh, and using the orders of the court to access certain databases for example of the of the private uh, service providers like mobile telecommunication operators and the third is uh, something which is very interesting and unique, which is recognized in this report, uh, it's a so-called slow motion splintering of the internet into an, an um, kind of uh, uh, cyber sovereign regions and countries. And this is the third one is something which I would like to elaborate a little bit with you. We have seen no success 
on global internet governance agreements. And in the same time, in practice, the internet works, e-commerce works, and to a certain degree also cross-government, regional, uh, digital services are functioning, I mean, okay, customs and border guards and basic kind of digital core services. Now the cyber sovereignty where governments are imposing their own internet regulations, uh, it's something which is, which is rather new. There has been attempts of creating an kind of separate and disconnected and your own internet also earlier, especially with uh, kind of remarks towards uh, Russia and China. However, in a broader scene, we have not recognized it earlier. What do you see? In, uh, what do you see behind the arguments? Why the cyber sovereignty, including also right now? in European Union level, the aim to create the EU cyber sovereignty or digital sovereignty concept into a really practice. What are the causes of that? And is it really related to the fact that we have not been able to achieve the consensus on global internet governance? Yes, had there been some sort of consensus on the global governance, then there might not have been so many of such attempts. So to some extent, to start from the end of, of your um, question, then yes, it matters. However, I think maybe this would have happened sort of in, in any case, unless, of course, there, which is very unlikely, but unless there would have been some generally agreed, very good system for for regulating internet globally but that was never really possible to have such consensus had uh, anybody guessed how important internet would become when it was first launched made made available for ordinary people it would never have been allowed to develop so freely i think that that is something that most commentators agree on so uh, in a way you could say we probably had a window of this sort of greater freedoms and then when it was realized just how important it is then this um kicks in this kind of instinct of countries that they want to control it more as I said, had there then by that time been some kind of very effective global governance, then uh, states would rather have looked, so how do you fit your system into this global system? But now that hasn't really worked. This is very linked to what I was talking about with the importance of private companies, which is something where countries find themselves uh, unable to control big companies. So, so private companies are more powerful than, than governments. So, so this is something uncomfortable for governments. So it's, uh, it's an instinct um, to, to want to control. And it, it, in a way, theoretically, of course, it makes sense because the only way you can um, set up any rules and make sure that they are followed is if you know the extent of your jurisdiction, and that is then based on the extent of your sovereignty. Also. So theoretically, this, this is the way the world works, that different countries can make rules and enforce them at their territory or for their subjects, and then there are rules for how to cooperate and so but this is very theoretical. In practice, of course, internet sovereignty doesn't make sense because the whole point of this 
digital world is that we can move without moving, that um, you can access things from wherever. And even if there are, of course, technical ways of trying to restrict this, there are also lots of ways around it. So people will find those ways around it. So um, so I think the, the fact that um, it's still talked a lot about this kind of sovereignty on the internet has more to do with the fact that... Um, governments and, and I mean people who work in different positions within countries doesn't have to be just on the political side but I mean judges or lawyers or, or anybody who thinks about these things it's a strange world to not know what you can regulate and then how can you expect these rules to be followed and um, it is just simply too too different from from the way the world has been used to to sort of deal with things. So um, that that's the kind of what's behind it. Of course, had there only been nice things on internet, there would might again not have been such a trend. Then yes, everybody was surprised how important it became. And then if the world had become a better place, and then we had more freedoms and rights, and so then it would have just been nice. Uh, but because we have seen more and more of the, the dark side of this in all sorts of ways, internet can be used for all sorts of very bad things um, and naturally there needs to be a reaction and um, so what is that reaction can we trust that facebook and google handle everything themselves that would be very strange no we can't so we need to sort of see how can citizens be protected and and then that that leads to to this idea of sovereignty which I think will fail, actually. I don't think it will really work. Yeah. I agree, and it's really interesting to see how fuzzy is a picture around the sovereignty and how different it is with a concept in different countries right now. Uh, however, it is one of the trends we are witnessing right under our eyes. Unfortunately, yet another time we are able to say that more government control has not increased the freedom on the net and uh, also the broader picture is going to continue with uh, less freedom on the net based on this year's uh, report. To end with a positive note, Katrin and I, who have been both contributors to that report, uh, are glad to say that uh, the two countries on the top of the freedom on the net, the most free internet countries remain the same level and the status. They are Iceland and Estonia and uh, there are not too many restrictions yet in place in neither of those countries and uh, it has been the trend for the last 10 years at least. I would like to thank Katrin for joining me today uh, the topic of today's Digital Governance podcast was uh, Freedom on the Internet. My name is Linnar Wiek. I'm a program director at the Estonian e-governance academy. And with me was today the studio talking about the freedom on the net, Katrin Neumann-Metcalf, our uh, expert at e-governance academy. Please join us next week for another episode of Digital Government Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by eGovernance Academy. Tune in on next Wednesday.